Welcome back to What Happens at Work, a brand new podcast from Bamboo HR, where you will hear stories from employees as they share firsthand experiences of what really happens at work. After each story, we interview experts who will help us make sense of what happened, learn from what happened, so that we can take it all back to make our own workplaces better. I'm Amy Frampton, host and head of marketing at Bamboo, and I'm so excited to be here with you. Today's episode is all about pivoting between jobs. How do you decide when the time is right? And what are some things to consider before you make a transition? Let's start with a pivot gone wrong. Here's Laura. I was at a company that I really felt aligned with the mission and I really enjoyed working there, but I felt that to grow my career, I needed to grow elsewhere. I had been looking for a job for seven months when I got into three different late stage interview processes. So I was driving to Houston one Friday last year to visit a friend for the weekend. And as I was driving, I received a call on my cell phone and it was a recruiter from an enterprise tech company that I was interviewing with. And the recruiter was calling with a job offer. So when I received the phone call from the recruiter, I was a bit excited to have an offer. But to be honest, I wasn't excited about the company. I wanted to use the offer to push my other two companies to either make a decision or get quicker throughout the process. So when he first contacted me, I was on the fence. And even though this was my third choice employer, I really felt that getting out of my current negative environment, I really needed to solve my stress at work to improve my mental health. I have a bulging disc in my spine. It was causing shooting pains in my neck and my arm. And when I would be stressed out throughout the day, it would get worse and worse. So I went to my doctor and I started having to go to physical therapy, get cortisone injections. And all this was due to the stress that I had at work. So Laura decides that a pivot to something else must be better. It's moving in some direction, even if it is her third choice employer. But as she's driving to Houston, her conversation with the recruiter becomes more and more concerning. So I had provided the recruiter with my salary requirement earlier in the process, and he came in with $10,000 less. I asked him to see if he could come up to what I wanted. And then the recruiter proceeded to share with me that there was another person, the number two candidate, who was willing to take $10,000 less and who could start the role immediately. He then asked if I still wanted him to bring back my counteroffer to the hiring manager, you know, with the knowledge of this quote unquote other candidate. As the recruiter began pressuring me during the salary negotiation, my anger really started to build. This recruiter throughout the process was pretty pushy. Here he is trying to pit me against this imaginary candidate. And I was blown away. Like I have never had a recruiter try to get me to negotiate against myself. I, I called his bluff and I said, yes, I do want you to take my counteroffer to management because I feel that's what I deserve. I hang up with him. I continue driving down Highway 71 to Houston and about 10, 15 minutes pass and the recruiter calls me back. 
and said that the hiring manager was willing to come up to my ask. And then he asked me to accept the offer on the spot. I told him I, I couldn't answer immediately because A, I had a meeting with another company later that day that I wanted to see through. B, I wanted to discuss the job offer with my family. And C, I was in the middle of driving. After this phone call, she follows back up with her first choice employer to get an update from them. I told them I had an offer, but this company was my first choice. And the recruiter told me to go ahead and take that offer. So I accepted the job offer after pleading with the recruiter to give me the weekend to think about it. All right, let me just quickly clarify. Laura had three interview processes she was juggling. Her third choice is the one that offered her the job. When she reached back out to her top choice, they told her to just take the offer she already had, basically saying she wasn't their top candidate. While she was disappointed, she reasoned that any change was probably good, so she took the offer from her third choice. But after starting her new job, it didn't get any better. So after about two weeks working at this horrible job, I realized that this would not be a long-term solution. I was already even more stressed out than my previous role. I was feeling more pain with my spinal issue. I was already exhausted for having looked for seven months. And now I was embarking on what would be another five to six month journey to find another role. But she finally found a good job with a great candidate experience in the field she wanted to work in. She's been there for a couple of months now. The job that I'm in right now had a really great candidate experience. It started with a warm reach from the recruiter through LinkedIn. I really felt cared for throughout that process. And it was such a marked difference from the other recruiter. It felt like I was just a number and a quota for that hiring. They're either ghosting candidates, they're leaving them hanging throughout the process. They're taking forever. They're including so many more hoops to jump through. And some of them are unnecessary. Like how many people do you really need to talk to to know if this is a good candidate or not? I, I really feel that employers need to take a hard look within themselves about their candidate processes because currently they stink. The zigzag of Laura's story is deeply relatable to me. And I think to our guest as well, Jenny Blake. I feel like there's no better person to unpack Laura's story with than Jenny. She's the author of the award-winning book, Pivot, and formerly a career development program manager at Google. She's now a career and business strategist helping others to achieve greater clarity, engagement, fulfillment, and impact. She also has a podcast aptly named Pivot. As we've all listened to this story together on the podcast, what are your first thoughts? One thought that came to mind is just, I commend Laura for navigating what is always a tricky and sometimes maddening process that is pivoting, especially when you're between jobs and you have to make really tough decisions. What do you do when you're in the midst of that uncertainty? And also as Laura's story highlights, her body was giving her a lot of signals. So that recurrent back pain, that was almost this signal flare to her about the need to change, but also that interim pivot that company with all the red flags, it kind of also speaks to Laura's intuition and that her intuition was telling her at many tiny moments, it's like all those yellow flags turned bright red. It's good to get the energy moving, but there's no guarantee that the very next thing is the end all be all. 
I love that thought of pivot doesn't happen always instantly. What are the themes coming out of her story that you think about in terms of the job search process? As you think about what happened for her, maybe one of them is it's always not the next thing. I guess we could look at it from two sides. Her experience of navigating and also reading the tea leaves of the companies she's potentially thinking of working with. There's something I say in free time, how we bake is as important as what we make. And I think what Laura's highlighting at the end of her story is the difference in the how. We can learn from companies through their values, through their behavior of how are they showing up, whether it's a recruiter or a hiring manager or anyone else in between. And if at every time how this company was baking was not aligned with her energy and was creating friction and having her feel bullied. And yet sometimes career change feels so fraught because our livelihood depends on it. What if I need to pay the bills and I have to take this job even though I have these reservations? So it can also get really muddy. And that's something that Laura highlights really well is that sometimes you have to put one foot for the other. You make your best educated guess. For sure. And so as you think about the recruiters, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how the recruiters acted in this case and what it shows both about the company, but also about their recruiting process. I really don't like the way of doing business of pretending there's another candidate if there really wasn't. It sounds like Laura had a feeling this was an imaginary candidate that the recruiter was playing the two against each other. We don't know. Maybe there really was, but I'm really not a fan of practices like that. Yeah, anytime there's dishonesty in the process like this is such a big life decision. That's really concerning. And it sounds like she heard that or maybe guessed that, but almost couldn't believe it could be true and didn't listen to her instincts there. And a lot of these pressure tactics, you need to decide right now, oh, we're on a deadline. And so this kind of false bullying, I need to know right now, you need to tell me before everyone else has ego involved. I do think what you said just now about hearing our instincts in those moments is very important. And we get signals, right, while we're interviewing and while we're interviewing each other for these companies. One thing that I always tell folks that I mentor, if you feel like you need a couple weeks between jobs and that's a problem for this new company, that's a signal. Because two weeks, three weeks, a month isn't that long for wherever you're joining. But man, it can make a world of difference in terms of resetting. And if they react really badly to that request, what does that mean? And it's a signal about potential burnout culture because when I was leaving Google, I needed a month or two to decompress. It was such a fast-paced culture. And I was in the beginning kind of berating myself a little bit. Why am I so tired? I left my job to start my own business. And now look at me, I'm just a lump on the couch. And at that time, the people weren't talking about burnout as the way that we are now. And I just thought at my core, I must be a lazy, exhausted person. But no, I just needed that off ramp. Yeah, I often encourage that with people, especially making big transitions, because I just think it's so important. I took over a month after I left Microsoft. I needed the time to be my best self at work. Can you give us some more background about the pivot method you developed? The pivot method is a four-stage process for mapping what's next. I started working on the book in 2014, and it was to answer this question, what's next, because my thesis was we're all going to be experiencing change much more frequently in our careers than previous generations. And now we've completely been in a continual state of pivot the last few years. So the first thing I'll say, if you're mid-pivot, if you feel like there's no steady ground beneath, you're in good company. So there's nothing wrong with you. Drop any shame and blame about how come you don't have this figured out yet. That's normal. The 
metaphor itself of how to pivot comes from basketball. So a basketball player, when they stop dribbling, one foot stays planted and then the other foot can scan for passing options as they swivel around. And that plant foot is so important and it's the one that we often forget. So in this context, plant is two things, your strengths and your one-year vision. A lot of people think, oh, I'm at a pivot point. What's out there? And I don't know. This may have come up in Laura's experience where instead of looking at what's working, what am I enjoying most? Where am I in the zone? And doubling down on that, we look and focus on what's not working and what we're trying to get away from. And sometimes that can lead us astray because we're not being pulled like a magnet. We're running away from something we don't want. And so when your vision is what does success look like? What's your ideal average day? Who are you surrounded by? What types of projects are you working on? How do you want to learn and grow in the next year? What kind of impact do you want to have? With these two parts of the plant stage, then we can scan for passing options around the court, people, skills, and projects that are related to our strengths and our vision. And so if you're scanning without a plan, that's what leads to compare and despair, analysis paralysis, the feeling that you're submitting 100 resumes or 500 and nothing's coming to pass. So once we have the plant stage, another metaphor would be Google Maps. You have your current location and generally where you want to end up with your vision. Now you can determine what's the best mode of transportation to get there. The third stage pilot is all about small experiments. A lot of people think, oh, I need to have my pivot solved before I do anything. And it usually works the exact opposite, that it's only when you line up a few small resonant experiments based on your strengths and your vision, that those experiments take on a momentum and a life of their own. And they will show you what path is really pulling you forward. But you can't know, as there's one saying I love, you can't see the open doors until you start walking down the hallway. Okay, let me do a quick recap. The first stage is plant. What are your strengths? And what is your one-year vision? The second stage is to scan. What are your people skills and what are some projects that are related to these strengths and a one-year vision? The third stage, again, is pilot. Small experiments to test out these projects and plans. All right, back to Jenny. The fourth stage launch, that's where you go all in, in a new direction. We say, I've reduced as much risk as I can. Some risk still remains, but I'm willing to take a chance. So in Laura's case, taking that interim role, she took a chance. She launched. She accepted that job and she quickly realized, oh, my fears were correct. This isn't for me. And she initiated the process again. And I'm impressed that it sounds like she found her next thing relatively quickly after that, which is amazing. What can HR do specifically around recruitment and hiring to make it more accessible and welcoming for these potential hires that are looking to pivot? I think you might know something about that. (laughs) I love on Bamboo HR's website, there's that video on the homepage that shows just the importance of process and transparency. When the hiring organization is organized and the people who are part of the hiring process are clear on their role and clear on the process, then super bonus, you make that process completely transparent to the people you're trying to hire. Everybody feels more at ease because everybody can understand what's next. It's a huge life decision. You know, I think it feels uh, and reasonably so big when people make those decisions. So any transparency is so important um, to help people make the right decision for them. One thing that I've seen change so much is remote work. And I've done remote work at companies. I think lots of people have, but I think it's a much more widespread for all sizes of business. I moved to Park City, Utah for this job. I moved two months before COVID. You know, now with this remote first or 
definitely remote leaning world. How do you think about that as a job seeker? Because it really does change the landscape of what's possible. I think remote work and the option for that is a much more humane experience. We know for women, moms with young kids, some men too, if they were a primary caretaker, it's been incredibly stressful juggling things. Or if you are caretaking for a parent or anything that involves slightly atypical hours, I think it's long overdue that we free ourselves from this rigid factory system way of working. But if you're a job candidate, if you're a seeker, if you're a pivoter, think about are you someone where in person is really important to you. And I think a lot of us did learn about ourselves that I'm deeply introverted and it takes a lot for me to wanna go to events with people. So I'm really happy. I've been working from home by myself. I'm really happy by myself. For other people, especially if you're new to a company, it can be incredibly hard to wrap your mind around the culture and the relationships and the structure of how information travels. It's really something to think about as you're looking for a job. For me, I love that I go in two days a week. I love seeing people. I love the connection. I love the work product that I think you can get done in person. But I also love two or three days a week at home where I can really crank I love that. I think that's such a sweet ratio that you have. We're five times more likely to be in a flow state when we are working on our strengths, when you can focus and you can concentrate. For sure. And one thing you mentioned was guilt and shame around job changing and how we need to get away from that. I'd love to hear more about that and about how recruiters and HR and really all of us as managers can help people move away from that emotion. Part of the reason I wrote Pivot was that I observed when I was at Google and I trained over a thousand people, this is the best and the brightest. And they would often come up to me in the hallways a year in whispering like, Jenny, I'm bored and I don't know what to do because they were afraid to talk to their manager. And none of us wanted to be those entitled millennials that just can't stay put, that aren't ever happy. But if you're high net growth and you're in a entry-level customer support role. It's okay. You're going to get bored. It's just natural. It's normal. And at that time, the only language was, oh, I'm having a quarter-life crisis or a midlife crisis. There was no talk of career pivoting. And at that time, I felt we needed really neutral language. How do I say I'm at a pivot point and not have it be this shameful thing or thing that you're afraid to tell your manager for fear that they think you have one foot out the door? A pivot point is a neutral concept. And so if we can have neutral shared language, then managers as well can ask their team members, how are you excited to grow in the next year? I may not have stretch projects for you right now, but I'd love to know what you're most excited about so that when new projects come down the pike for our team, I know exactly who to give them to. So I think it's also giving managers permission in career conversations. You don't have to solve the career conversation in one sitting. Do way more listening than talking. As we look at people's careers on a spectrum and think, gosh, there's some people that stay at the same place. My grandfather worked at Standard Oil for 60 years. He started pumping gas and then worked at the company, you know, and then some people end up really changing a lot and kind of running from jobs, maybe not pivoting with one foot down, maybe just running. How do you think about that spectrum and how do people move to pivoting versus running? Well, I do think the media gave millennials quite a bad rap for a while that everyone's just an entitled spoiled brat that got too many trophies as a kid. I think that was just unfair that millennials, what they were saying is, I want more meaning in my work. And by the way, money is important, but it's not everything. At the same time, I definitely hear from managers, and I think leaders have had it especially tricky the last few years, that 
there are genuinely some entitled people who have to learn. And I'm going to say that could happen at any age. In Pivot, I talk about unrealized gains and diminishing returns. Unrealized gains is that you haven't stayed long enough to get a win under your belt, to build any reputation, to build meaningful relationships, to work through inevitable challenges. You have unrealized gains. If, if I say I got a job at Google and I left after three months, I have not really realized any of the gains of having worked there. And that's okay. People need to do what they need to do. But if that's your entire modus operandi, it's not going to lead to a fruitful, sustainable career. My friend Brad calls it career Roomba syndrome. Oh, I had an obstacle and you bounce off and you try to go a new direction. And that would be deeply unfulfilling if you only exist as a career Roomba. And then diminishing returns is that you've stayed in a role or had a company really past the point of growth. I've had people where their manager said to them, you will not get promoted here again. And for some people, that's okay. Other people want to accelerate their growth. So that's the point. Diminishing returns is you're actively bored and uncomfortable and feel stagnant because you're actually staying too long. That's helpful. Thank you. I feel very validated by this conversation because people are always like, wow, you've said a lot of different things in your career. How do you feel about that? I don't know. It sounded fun. It was fun. I learned a lot. That's it too. I think also some people are builders and some are better maintainers. And if you're a builder, you want to be building new things. Yeah, I feel that. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us on What Happens at Work. Check out more episodes packed with surprising stories and insightful conversations. And if you're wondering what's next for someone like Laura, hop on over to episode three, where we unpack first days on the job. Thanks to Laura for sharing her story and to Jenny Blake for her amazing expertise. You can learn more about Jenny at pivotmethod.com. Thanks to our Bamboo HR team, Sweetfish Media, and our producer, Alana and Nevins.